morning everybody and welcome to week nine of Forensic Psychology. Now in this week's lecture we're going to be focusing on the psychology of terrorism. Now in our debate on Thursday, this Thursday coming, we're going to be investigating a very specific case of terrorism, kind of a uh, a case of far-right terrorism in, in Europe of a man by, uh, by the name of Andreas Breivik uh, and debating kind of the role of mental illness. But the goal of this lecture uh, as a standalone item is to look much, much broader at kind of the psychology of terrorism as a whole. And what I'm going to do with you in this lecture is I'm going to answer six questions about terrorism that I always get asked as a psychologist who kind of studies this area for a living. So buckle in, get excited, it's week nine. Let's go. So today's video is brought to you by Inui Candles. I don't know if you're like me, but my cat has decided that my recording studio is a gigantic litter tray and therefore shits in the corner of the room at least three times a day. That's great. Uh, so where would I be without Inui Candles? Inui Candles, hand poured in LA. One, it's this candle, through the forest, past the temple, Soaking in an onsen has notes of hinoki, cedarwood, moss, and burning incense. There we go. Where would I be without Inui? That's free. That's free right there. Use code ND Shortland to get 15% off Inui candles hand poured in Los Angeles, California. No grades are affected by purchasing these candles. Thank you very much. No, all seriousness. They smell fucking decent. Um, all seriousness, right, let's get into the topic. So we're gonna go through six questions, basically, about uh, terrorism that I often get. And the reason that I know I, uh, that these are kind of, I guess, central and, and interesting questions around the psychology of the topic is that whenever you write a kind of a basic book on the, on the topic, these are kind of the ones you focus on. In, in fact, the the... Today's lecture is basically an outline of kind of, you know, this book right here, the real, the real ad, if anyone's interested. So I wrote this book last year in kind of a base psychology series called The Psychology of Everything. And they came to me, you know, it, it's this intro psych series for everybody who's interested. And they said, we want someone to write the, the kind of the intro to terrorism idea. Because what, what happens when there are acts of, oh, Go back in there, go back in there, there we go. When there are acts of, of terrorism or acts of violence, even like we saw last week, a lot of people get into this debate around, you know, is it terrorism? What is terrorism? Why are things terrorism? And then why are things that aren't readily called terrorism? Well, why aren't they readily called terrorism? And all of these kind of questions come up and it comes to this really essential psychological debate around what does it mean to say that something is terrorism and by saying that something is terrorism what are we saying about the individual now 
this isn't really a new question. Like if we're going to go into the into the deep psychology of the area, you know, there's a there's a book by Max Taylor in 1984, possibly. Sorry, Max. Um, called the Fanatics, basically, where he's like. What is the psychology of fanaticism? And he was talking about, you know, the IRA. He was talking about these early waves of leftist and, and, and ethno-nationalist terrorism that we saw, you know, starting in the kind of the, the 1920s and, and, and through them. So it's not new. But, but what really happened was that after 9-11, there was this gigantic move by basically the social sciences to say, right, this is a... A, a unexplored and unstudied, you know, psychological phenomena, this, this idea of, you know, of terrorism. And, and we are the best positioned to solve it because terrorism is a, a human activity. Now, what, what happened in, and, and this is something that, you know, psychologists far, far better than me, um, have said for a long time, you know, John Horgan's my mentor, he, he's big in this field, and he kind of started some of the conversations, you know, um, you know, Ari Kruglansky, who we can talk about, um, you know, Clark McCauley, Max, uh, Max Taylor, Mark Sage, and all these big names. What they kind of noticed, and one of the things that we, we struggled with, was it, it has, almost like crime itself, it has this idea that because the act is so spectacular, and by that I mean we, we, we should really debate this idea that they are spectacular, but, but by, by spectacular I mean the kind of the, you know, the 9-11s of the world, the 7-7 the bombings in London, you know, these spectacular acts where someone is able to kill a large number of people, you know, lay a bomb like they did in the Boston bombings or, or use a plane like they did in 9-11 or blow up a train as they did in London and, and Madrid in 2008. Because someone is able to do that and, and, and to engage in such, if you will, spectacular violence and harm, they too psychologically must be spectacular. Right. If, if you track the logic there, you know, it's, it's that like old gym meme, isn't it? You know, um, Oh, if you want to do something you've never done, you have to do things you've never done. Something dumbass like that. But, but the idea almost is, is, is the same psychologically, that for someone to do things that no others do, they have to be something that no others are. And that was this kind of underpinning ethos of the research, is we have to basically reinvent the wheel, because we've never explained terrorism before. And, and none of our previous theories and no previous psychology can even be useful because how on earth can you go from explaining benign, normal human behaviours to explaining something as rare, extreme and, you know, uh, something as terrorism? Because from a, from a fundamental standpoint, you know, terrorism can, can involve the, the individual sacrificing their life in, 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 in pursuit of a cause, you know, suicide bombing being a classic example. That is very difficult to explain because anyone who adopts a, a rational model can't explain that, you know, unless you, 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 so, you know, you, there are explanations, but, but you, from on the face of it, that's very difficult to describe. And so you have this immediate disconnect. And so uh, what happened was that they created a lot of new, a lot of new, um, a lot of new theories, if you will, to try and explain this this phenomena of terrorism. And then that kind of proceeded on through the next kind of two or so decades. And, and I'll, by the end of this lecture, I'll kind of try and fill in where we've where we've kind of ended up. So 
In this lecture, I'm, I'm very basically going to cover six, five, 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 read my own, read my own chapter, uh, read my own contents page, five basic questions about the psychology of terrorism that I want you to be able to think about and be able to give a, a answer to at the end of this lecture. We also have a case study in the middle of this lecture from a, a right-wing terrorist called Sarah, which is, you know, phenomenally portrayed by our very own TA Hope, puts out an absolute Oscar-worthy performance there, um, to give you kind of, to give you like a real sense. So let's jump in, let's answer a couple questions, and let's go from there. So let's go, question one. Question one, question one, what is terrorism? Now that, that may sound like a, a very basic question and even an easy question, but for the love of all things holy, it is absolutely not an easy question. And then the reason for that is how we define, so firstly, there's the kind of the classic old adage of, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, which is fair. There is this idea of, the term terrorism is pejorative. So how you apply it ba is based on your interpretation of the act of the person who is engaging in terrorism. So someone who lives in, in, in Northern or Southern Ireland may not view members of the IRA as terrorists. Whereas that is, that's this kind of, you know, pejorative um, kind of bias starts to that, if you will. But, but even beyond that, that classic adage, you know, where, how you define something as terrorism is based on what the, the, almost what is the purpose of the definition. So if you want to call someone a terrorist legally, you have to meet certain criteria to prove it in a court of law. And there are, you know, there are charges associated with that. If you want to call someone a terrorist at an international stage, there is a different definition about kind of what entails terrorism at an international stage. And then you also have this kind of concept of kind of the, the public and emotional view of kind of, you know, what is terrorism and what constitutes terrorism. So let me give you three examples to kind of put that point in perspective. So let's go with the first example. So the first example would be a guy called uh, Michael Adebowale. And, and Michael Adabalanja, there's these two individuals, and I believe it was 2013, when they were walking down, uh, sorry, there was a soldier called Lee Rigby, who was a, a fusilier, so he was in the band, and he was walking down the high street in, in Woolwich, England, and Adabawale and Adabalanja were in a car, and they basically ran over Lee Rigby, um, and then they got out of the car, and they had rusty old meat cleavers, and in front of everybody, they basically, you know, hacked him to pieces and one of the most famous moments is that a lady had her cell phone out and and, and michael adabowale kind of speaks to the camera and basically says you know we've murdered him today in retaliation for everything that's going on in afghanistan everything that's going on in iraq the wars in the middle east withdraw your troops and we'll stop you know bringing blood to british soils so that'll be the first case the second case would be something like the vegas shooter or, or something like the uh, the the um, the Asian attacks uh, at the at the massage parlors that we saw last week. So, kind of um, instances in which individuals 
either in the US or it can be in other countries, use uh, firearms to basically go and kill a large number of people. Right. So so in in the in the massage parlor, that's eight in the Vegas shooting, you know, that's in the 50s. You know, there are a lot of instances like that. And then a third case, let's go. Let's say there are there is a, an individual and I have forgotten his name, but the, the media called him. They didn't call him Juhadi John. That's a different one. But basically, there was a young kid around 15 or 16, seven, I think 17 or 18, who left England and flew to join the Islamic State in, in Iraq and Syria, which, if any of you don't know, was a kind of a, a terrorist offshoot of Al-Qaeda that emerged as part of the Syrian civil war and, you know, um, had a very strong foothold and presence between kind of 2017, 2018. And there's been a lot of kind of ISIS, you know, actors in, in most countries, in America and all this kind of stuff. So, so this young boy went out and joined ISIS, um, and he was speaking to his parents and he said, you know, I need money to survive. I need money to escape. Can you send me money? And the parents basically sent him money and they were then arrested. Now, the who in that group you call a terrorist depends almost on who you ask. But in terms of classic definitions, the first case is absolutely clear cut terrorism. And the third case is clear cut terrorism. And the second case at the moment would be clear cut, not terrorism, despite the fact that the second case causes the most harm and almost, you know, to the to the to the I guess to the to the basis of the French word, you know, terror. Terror is either terror, terrorism in French or it's the no, because terror, terror, terror is when you're drinking wine and you say you can taste the terroir, that's the nature of the soil expressing itself through the wine. The word terrorism has nothing to do with the fucking wine industry. Terrorism as a word is, is, is originally French from the, the French Revolution. But anyway, that's a tangent. Um, even though those middle cases do the much terrorizing, they aren't terrorism. However, the case on the right in which no one is directly hurt absolutely is terrorism and they went to trial for terrorist related cases and the one on the left is absolutely terrorism even though and I don't I don't I'm not saying this to belittle even though it was only the murder of one individual so when we look at terrorism and, and this is something I I often say I did a, a research project with the Department of Homeland Security where we collected a data set of um of 184 people who operated for al-qaeda and I always kind of said flippantly, but, but, but accurately, that that database involved everything from, you know, a man who walked a bomb onto a plane in his underwear to kind of a father who kind of basically tried to lie a little bit to protect their son. And all of those, both of those and the whole spectrum in between, all of them were terrorists. So, so if we're trying to define something, how do, we, how do we go about, I guess, asking if something is terrorism? Well, what separates terrorism from a mass shooting, from a murder, from any kind of other form of harm is that it has basically a triangle within it. So you have your individual actor and then you have the victim. So that could be, you know, Lee Rigby, that could be, you know, innocent people in 9-11, that could be um, spectators at the Boston Marathon, that could be people on the roads in London that have been or Nice, where lorries and, 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 and vans have just been driven over them. And the same thing actually happened in the, I think, University of North Carolina in 20, I think it 
think 20, 2006, 2007. Um, you know, so, so the perpetrator and the victim. But then what terrorism has is it has this third party, right? It has this, this, this third party which makes up the triangle, which is a political body that they are trying to influence by hurting the victim. So the way to think about it is that in terrorism, the victim is never the true target. They are a, a byproduct or they are a... A, a, a messenger almost, if you will, to influence the real target. And that's why that first case is so clear cut, because Michael Adebowale stands there and he didn't say we killed Lee Rigby because we wanted to kill Lee Rigby. He said we killed Lee Rigby because we want the UK government to withdraw its troops from Afghanistan. Now, it doesn't matter that Killing one person, as, as abhorrent and sad as that is, is not going to make the government change its mind. It's not about the degree to which it's realistic to believe that your actions will create change. In the mind of the perpetrator, they have to be attempting to achieve a political change with their violence or with their actions. So if you can't identify who is the the true target, who is the real target in this case, then most psychologists will have an issue saying that it is terrorism. Now, there are some very grey area cases. The Dylan Roof one is one that people argue about. Dylan Roof, if any of you knows the, the Charlestown Church massacre, where he went in there and basically uh, to, a, to a predominantly black church, and he shot and killed as many members of the congregation as he could before leaving. Now, I believe that that was prosecuted as a hate crime. However, if you were to actually look at the case, and then GQ did a, a fantastic write-up of the story um, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the individual in his history, you know, GQ called it the makings of a most American terrorist. And it's about his kind of, his white supremacist narratives and his upbringing and, you know, there's photos of him with Confederate flags and KKK flags. No one debates that. That is absolutely terrorism from a definitional standpoint. The issue was that the legal approach that they took, they went down the hate crime path. So it even clear cut acts of terrorism. And, and, and for Dylan Roof's case, in his manifesto, he talked about the fact that he wanted there to be, you know, government level changes in, you know, in the way that, um, you know, the, the, the culture was run, that segregation was run, you know, all this kind of stuff. So that was his, you know, messenger. But... So, so that is absolutely a case of terrorism. But even then, it, it, still, it can still get quite grey. Um, I mean, there's no clear cuts, that absolutely is, that absolutely isn't. But in things like the, the Vegas shooting, the problem that you have is that other than that individual harming all of the people that they harmed in that area, right, in the concert venue that he was shooting at, who was he trying to influence? What was he trying to change? And if you can't answer those questions, then you very much can't say that it's terrorism. Now, here's the real kind of, I guess, million dollar problem with all of that. My definition of terrorism, and my definition is, is in no way perfect, but I think it emphasises the problems with all of this. My definition of terrorism is that terrorism, an, an act is an act of terrorism, if 
in the individual's mind, when they committed the attack, they believed that their attack would cause a political change. Now, as you can see from that definition, the only, unless they write it down, yell it, say it, publicise it, the only way you can know if it's terrorism is almost to be in the mind of the perpetrator themselves. Because they have to believe that they are, what they are doing is going to have a political effect, a political influence. And that's why it's often so hard to define not the clear-cut acts of terrorism. Often, often the clear-cut acts of terrorism are very clear. You go on their social media, maybe they're affiliated with a group or expressing an ideology. You, they, they write a manifesto, they're yelling something when they're doing it. You know, that makes it, quote-unquote, easy to define terrorism. The much harder cases are, why is, it, why is an act of harm where somebody has hurt a lot of people why is that not terrorism? And the reason usually is that we cannot link their actions as harmful and abhorrent and as, as appalling as they may be. You know, the Vegas shooting is, 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 you know, think how many lives were lost, right? We can't identify what political thing they thought they were changing by doing that. And that either means A, it wasn't there. In which case, it's not terrorism, it's, it's going to be a mass murder, mass shooting. Or B, they thought it, but they didn't say it. So, when it comes to what is terrorism, it is violence, it is harm against the victim, but with a view to creating, causing a political change. And that political change can be anything. It can be, it can be about who owns a country you know, it, and the country's independence. It can be about race. It can be about... Gender, it can be about um, the environment, it can be about anything. But the key thing is that their action, their violence, their harms, they have to, in their mind, be doing that to create a political change. If you can see that, if you can spot the who are they influencing beyond the victim, then you've got it. That's your terrorism. Now, this one is the one that has probably uh, taken up 50% of psychologists' brains. I think we, we've, we, we've gone through a journey, really, of this kind of... The first question we try to ask is, who is a terrorist? And the second one is, is why, do become, why do people become terrorists? And we kind of move from one to the other. So let's go with this first question of, who is a terrorist, right? You'll know this. You're all in my forensic psychology class. Dare I say... We tried to profile. There we go. So as psychologists, the big question was kind of who is or who isn't, if you will, a terrorist. And if you remember in the intro to this course, what I said was I said that terrorism is all about or the early views of terrorism, if you will, were all about that it was kind of the acts of it was a spectacular act of harm. Thus, it needed a spectacular psychology. And so what psychologists tried to do was they tried to say, well, OK, what is what, what does a spectacularly deviant or different individual look like? And so in the 80s and up into the 90s, there were all of these quests, if you will, to profile or, or pick out 
who is going to be a terrorist based on discrete personalities, uh, disorders or mental illness. So it started off with kind of mental illness, right? So the assumption that they were going to be um, narcissistic or psychopathic or, you know, schizophrenic or whatever it was going to be. And so uh, some early researchers would do research studies where they would compare, you know, samples of terrorists to samples of the population. And they would say, right, you know, are these individuals terrorists? You know, are there more are there more mental illnesses in our terrorist group? Are there more psychopaths in our terrorist group? Are there more sociopaths in our terrorist group? And what they what they kind of came to the realization or what their what their statistics showed was that actually there was no difference between the two groups. You know, Mark Sageman did a did a, a book um, in 2007, basically, where he studied kind of the, you know, the history of, of Al Qaeda members in America. And his specific quote was that, you know, they are demographically unremarkable. So and, and you know, there's been a lot of research studies that have, that have kind of, I guess, tested that or tried to try to test it. And, you know, this idea that what differentiates a terrorist, who becomes a terrorist? And they kept coming up time and time and time again. They just couldn't find anything that would separate somebody who's going to become a terrorist from somebody who is not going to become a terrorist. And I mean that at the, at the sole individual, individual level. Um, so the kind of the next step from that, and, 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 a, and a researcher called Paul Gill at the University of College London said it, like, in my opinion, better than anybody. Um, and in a 2013 paper, what he said was he said, well, what researchers have been doing is that they've been looking at the wrong dependent variable. And the, the, the question should not be who becomes a terrorist, but the question should be who is more likely to become a gun runner versus who is more likely to become a bomber. So the question that he kind of said was, was more interesting and almost offered more potential was not saying, you know, who's a terrorist and who's not a terrorist. It was saying, right, within all of the terrorists, can we see the difference between someone who's an extreme right-wing terrorist and someone who's an extreme left-wing terrorist? Can we see the difference between someone who is a lone actor terrorist and someone who is a terrorist as part of a group? You know, and then can we see the difference between, or, or identify facts, if you will, between um, someone who is going to, you know, be violent, use a gun, use a bomb, you know, hurt people, and someone who's going to maybe run finances or run logistics in a terrorist group, you know. Um, basically, how can we, instead of differentiating between terrorists and non-terrorists, can we disaggregate within our terrorists? And, and in the book I showed you earlier, one of the the quotes I use is, if you remember, I'm sure all of you have seen Mean Girls. I don't think anyone's seen Mean Girls. But in Mean Girls, there's that kind of, um, there's that scene where, is it Lindsay Lohan? I think it's Lindsay Lohan. I won't lie, my Mean Girls memory is not very good. Lindsay Lohan, if it is even her, goes into the, into the lunchroom. Right, and there's that very stereotypical scene of, you know, there's the jocks over there, the goths over there, the math nerds over here, and all of these different pockets, right, and they're all different, right, and, and within a high school, you know, we, we joke that that's kind of the case. Psychologists started thinking about terrorists in that same way. So, are there stereotypical left-wing terrorists who are very different from stereotypical right-wing terrorists? Are there stereotypically violent terrorists who are different from stereotypically non-violent terrorists? Are there massive differences 
between people who are lone actors acting alone and those who act as part of a cell or a group. And so then kind of kick-started this really interesting 10 or so years of research where people basically tried to answer that question and actually made really good strides. So we, um, we ran a project called Typologies of Terrorist Involvement and we found, you know, that there are indicators that differentiate violent terrorists from um, kind of, we call them supporters, so people who help them out, versus, what was it, supporters, actors and facilitators. So kind of these almost three different kind of personalities. And then there were hybrids who were a jack of all trades. Um, and, and Paul Gill did some really good work with a, a psychologist called Emily Corner, where they basically looked at, well, what about, why don't we revisit this assumption of, why don't we revisit mental illness? Because everyone had kind of dismissed mental illness, right? They'd gone, oh, no, well, the early science found that no one, no mentally ill people are terrorists. But that was a miscommunication of, of basic findings, but there we go. But, but you know, terrorists aren't mentally ill was the, was the common phrase. And Paul said, well, hang on a minute. And Emily really led this. Um, hang on a minute. What if en masse across all of them, you know, they're not mentally ill? But what if, if you look at certain types, are they more likely to be mentally ill? And they actually found that in a, in a paper they published in 2013, that a lone actor terrorist was 13 times more likely to have a diagnosed mental illness than a terrorist who operated as part of a group. So in that subgroup, mental illness is a huge issue, but it was kind of almost flattened out because we had this very binary view of terrorist and non-terrorist. So to give an answer to, I guess, the, the age-old quest for who becomes a terrorist, the real question is, ask me a better question than that. Ask me who becomes a something, a type of terrorist. And so, for example, we did a, we did a project recently that's soon to be published, where we, we took a big data set of about 1,800 terrorists. And we simply are all types, left, right, jihadist, whatever. And we simply ask the question, who of all of these 1800 terrorists is going to try and murder someone? Who is going to be violent and hurt someone? And we actually found with a risk model that we developed that, you know, previous convictions and access, you know, opportunity and, 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 and previous evidence that they will violate social norms. So a previous conviction, whatever it is, you know, using just a couple of those variables, we were predicting terrorists, violent terrorists from non-violent terrorists, 88% of the time, which is, I mean, unheard of, right? And the issue is we weren't trying to spot terrorists from non-terrorists. We were trying to ask specific, better, disaggregated questions, right? What I would say is, the analogy I always give is, you know, ask the question, you know, who becomes a doctor? Well, that doesn't get you anywhere. I mean, think how diverse doctors are. Do you think a paediatrician is the same as a surgeon? Right? No, of course they're not. You know, a better question is, of all of the doctors in medical school, what are the personality traits of someone who becomes a paediatrician or someone who becomes a surgeon? In sports, what are the different personality traits between someone who goes to be the quarterback and someone who maybe goes to be a wide receiver or a defensive back? You know, in everywhere else, we know that quite that different personalities match to different roles. In terrorism, we didn't begin with that concept, but now we are. So when it comes to who is a terrorist, the question I always ask back is, what kind of terrorist are you trying to spot? And we're really making some interesting progress there by looking at differences between different types of terrorists, rather than the broad binary terrorist, non-terrorist.
Because the terrorist group and the non-terrorist group, all of them are way too varied. But we're making great progress. is a really interesting question and it's one of the ones that I think you've probably in passing probably seen the most I guess I guess lay comments or commentaries or newspapers or, or, the, or the or kind of the the contemporary understanding of and basically this question is why do people become terrorists right so so after we move past this idea we can spot them and that there's an ingrained embedded or static personality trait that can predict this we move to kind of more of a process-based model. So, so John Horgan has a really good paper, like, like I really recommend it, 2008, from, uh, from roots to roots, and he spells it roots as in roots of a tree to roots as in roots on a road, and from profiles to pathways. So profiling to, to, to a longitudinal model, right? So what is this psychological change that occurs in someone that basically leads them to engage in terrorism? And the first thing that we kind of identified and kind of, jumped into with both feet is this idea of kind of um uh radicalization so i'm sure i'm sure most of you have heard that word but but if not radicalization would be traditionally defined if you will um as kind of a the psych the cognitive change in an individual in which they go from not supporting the use of violence to supporting and even engaging in the use of violence for a political for a political mean, and I'm sure you've seen the the depictions of you know radicalized individuals. Right? I mean, I was watching Davidchko the other day. You've got uh, Paul Bettany's character, you know, very much radicalized in the sense, you know, he he's willing to do anything, any violence or whatever it is to achieve his ultimate goal. You've got all of the depictions in any of the kind of the movies you've seen. Twenty Four always has a good few in it. Um, you know, all of these things depict this almost stereotypical kind of radicalized individual who believes that violence is the only way to achieve their goal. And that's a that's a cognitive mindset. And so a lot of the early psychology really asked this question of what does the radicalization process look like? What facilitates or causes the radicalization process? And kind of how can we understand from a psychological standpoint what that looks like? And, and you know, we, we mapped out some models of kind of, you know, being op kind of opening to an idea and then getting more and more and more and more and more and more extreme all the way to the point that you have this very fundamentalist belief and you have very much an echo chamber around you of people who reinforce your belief and you've closed yourself off from from alternating voices or, or counter information or anything and you've become you know this very very radicalized individual who believes in the in the use and the justification of violence now that's all very good, and, and I mean, no one, no psychologist would tell you that radicalization is not a valid, important, and critical concept at the heart of why someone becomes a terrorist. The problem is that early on in the kind of the mid 2000s, a couple psychologists began to notice that uh, jo uh, John says it well, you know, while not all of the people he not all of not all radicalized individuals engage in terrorism and not all individuals who engage in terrorism are radicalized 
right? So at the time, this psychologist called Clark McCauley, who's at uh, University of Maryland, he had what he called the triangle model, a pyramid model, if you will, in which it was basically to propose that individuals go through multiple steps of radicalization. So, you know, not very radicalized, quite radicalized, way more radicalized, definitely very, very radicalized, right? And as you go up, there's less and less people, right? And, 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 and Mogadam in, in 2005 had a staircase model, right? You go up the staircase and each staircase you go up, your cognitions get more extreme, you close yourself off. And there was a mixing of kind of cognitions and actions. And both of those assumed that the ultimate state of, of radicalization was you are now being a terrorist, right? So you, you cognitively got more extreme and at the end result, behaviorally you were a terrorist and and people started to kind of pick apart and question this idea of well hang on a minute what if those two things aren't the same and i i will always remember it um i was at a, a meeting uh, a department of homeland security meeting in 2013 2014 roughly and clark mccauley got up and he was talking about his, his work and his like storied career he's written some really good books friction um, how terrorism happens to us and them is a is a is a foundational text. Really, it's it's, it's really great. Um, and he basically said that he you know he's he got this realization almost now, if you will, that there are two triangles. One is cognitive, so being radicalized and then kind of going up this 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 escalation of cognition leading to the justification of violence, and one is behavioral, in terms of being behaviorally more and more of a terrorist. So getting involved in terrorism, engaging with terrorists, planning behaviors, and eventually committing a terrorist attack. And, you know, what he said was, we have these two triangles, but we don't know how they are related to one another. They don't stack on top of each other. It's not always that you become cognitively engaged and then behaviorally engaged. They can occur at the same time. You can be behaviorally engaged and cognitions can catch up afterwards. You can just be behaviorally engaged and you can just be cognitively engaged. So Clark McCauley kind of said from a, from a, a, a psychological standpoint is we know there's almost two radicalizations. Radicalization of thought that ends with you being radicalized and radicalization of behavior, which ends with you engaging in terrorism. But we're not entirely sure how those two things relate to each other. Sometimes maybe they'll be perfectly, perfectly overlapping and sometimes they won't. And that almost kind of really invigorated the psychological um, psychologist to say, OK, well, maybe it's not just radicalization. What is this wider process that leads to someone becoming a terrorist? And what I really want to do now is I want to basically show you what that looks like. I'm going to give you uh, a quick case story. It, it, it's a lived narrative basically read by, by our very own Hope of a, a terrorist offender who... So I worked on a pro, uh, project with some colleagues in 2013-2014, John Horgan, Mary Beth Altia... Um, and, and what we were doing, uh, they were doing the interviews, I was, I, was, I was junior, I was doing more of the analysis, was they were actually interviewing terrorists and asking them, how did you get involved in terrorism? And it, it, I'll never forget, it's one of John's great uh, lessons, was if you ask someone why they became a terrorist, they'll give you very much an ideological, well, you know, 
The ideology says, la, 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 you know, this political group was doing this, 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 and this. It was unjust. It was this, it was this, it was this. This is why I do it, right? They'll give you that, that ideological spiel. If you ask, how did you become involved? You will very often hear a different, quite complex and very human story about what involvement looks like. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to jump in and we're going to listen to Sarah's story. And actually, we're going to listen to Sarah's arc from first being involved through to basically disengaging or becoming uninvolved. And from that, we can then kind of maybe answer some more of this question about why people become involved and move on to our next question of how can we stop people becoming involved. So let's jump into that. Enjoy. Sarah's account of becoming involved reinforces several crucial features identified elsewhere specifically that it should be considered a process rather than a singular event. Sarah identified her family's relationship with religion as critical to understanding her decisions as she was raised by a Baptist father and a Catholic mother. Despite an emphasis on religious schooling, Sarah realized early how this clashed with her parents' non-religious lifestyle. Both smoked, and Sarah described both as alcoholics. This, unsurprisingly, was always kind of a confusing thing. Sarah also disclosed that she felt that her parents held old-fashioned armchair prejudices. She recalled her mother had a saying, You're my child, and I love you unconditionally, but there's not anything you could ever do to make me love you less. But you better not bring home a the reasons for her initial interest in violent extremism, Sarah stated, were more complicated than mere exposure to the racist views of her parents. Sarah explained how, from an early age, she was involved in a wide array of antisocial behaviors. She attributed this behavior, in part, to a specific reaction to her acrimonious and often turbulent relationship with her father. I felt unwanted by my father. I wanted to, you know, feel loved and like I was important. And it, at that age, um, that was in my eyes a way to do that. And it didn't dawn on me that I was feeling worse the more I did, you know? The more I slept around, the more drugs, more drinking. As Sarah reached puberty, she began to develop sexual interest in other girls. This, amplified by her religious upbringing, she felt exacerbated her growing torment. When looking at involvement in violent extremism, one potential risk factor is emotional vulnerability, feelings of anger or alienation. This is supported by Sarah's re recollection of her own emotional state when she first came into contact with a right-wing group. I had all of this built up, the prejudice, the religious confusion, the sexual orientation confusion. I was angry because when my parents divorced, my father did not care about my sister and I. Sarah's first exposure to the extreme right-wing scene came via a group of skinheads in high school. Sarah says that in hindsight, these skinhead groups were little more than watered down punk rockers, mostly focused on the style, the way of life, the music scene. The skinhead group eventually split into neo-Nazis and anti-racist factions. Sarah continued to affiliate with the neo-Nazi faction, when asked why she chose this affiliation, Sarah responded, It was kind of that anger and that violence when I started out that kind of made it very easy for me to fall in with them. Um, the groups themselves were so scattered down that there was this, you know, 
the groups of skinheads that went the racist route and they would make their own little groups, you know? They would pretty much go to, you know, the corner store or the library or, you know, copy place and make their own flyers and literature and stuff like that. But like I said, that wasn't the initial draw. When asked about the internal dynamics of this new group, Sarah stressed, it was understood that being publicly involved meant there's no walking away. Sarah's reflections suggest that the level and nature of involvement may directly influence the ability to disengage from the movement. She acknowledged that the no walking away policy was not as strictly enforced among young recruits because losing these individuals wasn't such a great loss because they weren't fully involved. You know, they still had their own lives. Regarding herself, Sarah explained that when my involvement first started, that sense of what happens if you walk away or try to leave wasn't as urgent then because I hadn't made the decision to be so completely involved. It can be difficult to determine when precisely a recruit crosses the line from becoming involved to achieving full-fledged membership. Sarah's case is less ambiguous in that her commitment crystallized upon volunteering to expel another member. I think without really realizing it, that was my point of making my commitment. Because I said, I'll be the one to get rid of him. That to me was my crossover and where I said, okay, this is now at this point in time. I'm making this commitment, you know, to follow these rules, to be a member of the group. This crossover point represented a major change for Sarah, shepherding a new level of commitment. And from, yeah, there on it, it was understood there's no walking away. As she continued to engage with the older group, she got more neo-Nazi tattoos and made overt displays of her ties to right-wing violent extremism. These, in her mind, served a dual function in both projecting her beliefs to those around her, but also reinforcing her acceptance and identity within the group. It was during her engagement with this older right-wing group that Sarah was exposed to right-wing literature. Sarah emphasized that its significance was less relevant in terms of her indoctrination and far more influential in terms of empowering and equipping her to demonstrate knowledge to impress others. Sarah described in detail the wide range of activities in which she was involved, from recruiting friends to the movement, starting new factions focused on increasing female engagement, to engaging in criminal activities that eventually led to her arrest and incarceration. Thus, Sarah's engagement with violent extremism lends to support the claim that the phenomenon is best described as dynamic. She progressed through a range of situations, each serving to increase the strength in her involvement and engagement. Her experiences seem to be characterized by what Macaulay and Moskalenko have described as individual level mechanisms of radicalization. By Sarah's own account, her progression into violent extremism had its roots in her uncomfortable family circumstances, which allied with the attractions of an alternative and socially challenging lifestyle. She describes how, once involved, the social context drew her further in, reinforcing both commitment and action. However, what Macaulay and Moskalenko describe as group-level mechanisms also seems to be significant once she became more established member of the militant organization. Interestingly, by her account, ideology in any formal sense seems to have played a very limited role in explaining her involvement. Sarah recalled that shortly after becoming involved in the extreme right-wing scene, 
she began having doubts about her involvement. She struggled with recurring conflict about the reality of her involvement, asking herself, you are a why are you doing this? Such doubts would frequently arise from actions she performed that ran contrary to the ideology of the group. Sarah became involved in a relationship with a Hispanic man, while at the same time continuing to deepen her commitment to the group. Sarah's secret was soon discovered by a fellow member, one with whom Sarah had a prior relationship. He threatened to reveal the new relationship if she did not stop seeing this man. She complied. Sarah struggled to keep another part of her life separate from the demands of the group. At times during her involvement, Sarah was sexually promiscuous and engaged in drug use. Had the group discovered this, Sarah feels she would have been castigated as a whore and a traitor. Sarah acknowledged she was well aware at the time that she felt that she was being a hypocrite, but also recalled strenuous efforts to suppress those accompanying doubts. Sarah concedes that this emotional suppression was required to avoid conflict. Thus, according to Sarah, her disengagement process, consistent with Ebaugh's model of role exit, began with a series of doubts. Sarah recalls that if she had started to acknowledge such doubts explicitly, it would have unraveled everything. External events compounded her doubts. The aftermath of the 1995 Oklahoma City bombing caused Sarah to reflect deeply on her involvement with the extreme right-wing movement. She struggled with reconciling the knowledge of who committed this act, an extreme right-wing actor, with the infamous photograph of a one-year-old infant's bloodied, dirty body being carried away by a firefighter. I think it, it finally started to seep into my conscious mind, you know? Like, what are you doing? Do you want to be the bomber? Do you want to be, you know, that person that does this? Is it worth it? Is, you know, this the ultimate price I'm going to end up paying for what I'm doing? And there were those times that I would have, you know, the little voice in my head that says, you're a You know, there's something better. But I would always do more drugs, drink more, become more involved to kind of you know, push those thoughts away. While struggling to cope with deepening disillusionment, Sarah began to fear that others in the group might detect her efforts at concealment. In response, she notes that she felt an urgent need to demonstrate renewed commitment. I literally made a point to go out and recruit more people and, you know, to be more hardcore and start more fights. And, you know, because I felt now I have to reprove myself because they knew I had faltered. Sarah eventually admitted to herself that she was disillusioned with her involvement. Yet, consistent with Ebaugh's model of role exit and Rustbilt and colleagues' investment model, the absence of attractive alternatives coupled with her lack of confidence presented obstacles that prevented her from walking away. This growing toll of concealment, combined with the gradual increase of Sarah's self-awareness to external world norms, led her to consider leaving outright. Yet she acknowledged having had a difficult time successfully exiting the groups to which she belonged because, in her words, she lacked the resources to do so. Despite the negative consequences of continued involvement, to her the group still provided self-worth, validation, and protection. On many occasions, Sarah was walking the line and on her way out, but felt that the movement only dragged her back in. 
However, when Sarah was placed under house arrest, she recalls that it provided her with viable excuse to sever relations. Sarah felt that the group might acknowledge the potential security problem of her continuing to hang out with them now that she was known to law enforcement. She recalls adamantly thinking, well, I'm just not going to call them anymore. And if they show up here, then I won't answer the door. Sensing an effort to leave, however, the group responded in kind, making a point to let her know that they knew. Such threats reportedly reinforced Sarah's belief that she lacked exit routes. If I had the resources, I probably would have been able to leave. But in the end, I said, you know, I can't do it. I'm on house arrest. Where can I go? I have no money. I can't move. You know, um, um, I can't protect my family. I still very much wanted that attention. Pivotal moments that followed her return to the group, however, proved catalytic in her ability to disengage. One evening, Sarah was hanging out with the other members of her group. Drinking heavily, reading copies of the Turner Diaries, they considered potential targets. Serving as a driver and a lookout, Sarah aided in the armed robbery of a store. The owner was severely beaten by her then-boyfriend, a key figure in the group. Fearing arrest and prosecution for the crime, Sarah and he went on the run. Her boyfriend's abusive behavior contributed to Sarah acknowledging her inability to keep doing this forever, adding, at some point, I'm going to start popping out babies. On a few occasions, she gathered all of her belongings and went to the bus station to leave town and the group, but stopped at the last minute, citing her pervasive fear of being alone and horrible low self-esteem. In her view, though abusive, at least she had someone in her life. And you know, maybe I just got lucky because I actually have someone in my life. And if I end that, then I'm failing. I'm quitting. I'm going to be alone. Furthermore, Sarah adds that she never really had the resources to be okay by herself, which, in her mind, gave her very few options outside of the group. Sarah notes that federal prison changed her life and that there were several contributing factors related to her stay in prison that greatly influenced her decision to eventually walk away from the movement. She stressed that if she had not experienced these other contributing factors, she is unsure if she would have been able to seal the deal and really truly make the break. Incarceration provided physical separation from the movement and according to Sarah afforded her the opportunity to confront the doubts she struggled to conceal as part of the movement. One thing I often see is the people in the movement. You're so preoccupied with, you know, keeping up the beliefs and all of that that you almost need. One thing I often see is the people in the movement. You're so preoccupied with, you know, keeping up the beliefs and all that that you almost need prison. It gives you a space, like gives you a time to, to sort of think about those things and entertain those thoughts. Prison exposed Sarah to interactions with a racially diverse population while her tattoos of swastikas and other prominent neo-Nazi symbols remained clearly visible while donning the prison uniform. Information about her case was highly publicized on television and in the print media. This, she felt, made her a potential target in prison. Sarah was placed in solitary confinement at first and commented that she was worried she would be fighting every five minutes. However, 
Once put in the general prison population, non-white inmates, to her surprise, began to befriend her, even offering her cigarettes. They even concealed information about her case from other inmates. Sarah recalls, They knew what I was, and they still treated me like any other person. And there were a couple, you know, white women I became friends with. But I actually ended up being the closest with black women for whatever reason. It was in prison that Sarah realized that she could achieve a sense of self-worth and belonging outside of her involvement in right-wing violent extremism. As part of her work detail, Sarah was assigned to help a general education development teacher in the prison system with grading. When Sarah realized that certain women in the class were not participating because they were illiterate, she began to teach them how to read. Sarah reported that the experience of teaching these women of all different races, how to read had a profound effect on her. It was more for me than them. That, to know that I had that power within me, that I was capable of, you know, being compassionate and empathetic and, you know, actually caring about these people that I professed to hate for so many years. Those kinds of experiences changed me tremendously. In fact, while in prison, Sarah chose to testify against her former movement. According to Sarah, the decision to cooperate with law enforcement officials provided her a sense of relief. After her release from prison, rather than accepting or quickly dismissing racist thoughts when they arose, Sarah claims that she made a conscious decision to challenge them. Leaving prison and the group, according to Sarah, was very emotional because of the, that wall of anger on which she depended on for so long had crumbled. You know, I went to prison, this racist, horrible, violent person, and my whole life changed. It was like being reborn, but not in like the religious sense. When I came out of prison, you know, like I experienced things differently. The colors looked brighter, you know? I became comfortable with the fact that I may not be heterosexual. Sarah's case is a clear example of what becoming a terrorist means. It is not simple. It is not linear. It is complex. It involves multiple pushes, things in your life that push you away from normality, and pulls, things in a group that pull you towards them. Furthermore, these pushes and pulls changed over time. Now, rather than seek to understand her trajectory here, what is critical to emphasize is that it is very clear that radicalization was not the problem. Did she engage in radical violence? Yes. But was the cause of that simply a process of adopting and adhering to an extreme right-wing ideology? Of course not. So I hope you really enjoyed the case of Sarah, and, and I know it's only one interview, so to obviously, you know, there's scientific caveats, you know, we can't generalize and la la la. Although I, I would say that actually we, we did some wider analyses, we've done autobiographical analyses. Pete Simi is, a, is, a, is, a, is an absolute lightning rod of a researcher. He's done uh, interviews with hundreds of extremists and they all give the same thing. They give a very human view on what it is to become a terrorist. And I give that case in my online classes, I give it in my real life classes. And, and what it really does is it, is it humanizes the, the psychological process of being involved in terrorism. And one of the best ways to think about it 
and I, and again, I'll, I'll defer to John Horgan on this one as the as the as the voice of of, of I think you know of, of real clarity. And what John John always said is when it comes to why someone becomes involved in terrorism, there's the big reason, right? You know, the war in Afghanistan, you know, uh, unjust U.S. As, uh, U.S. actions abroad, climate change, you know, fears of fears of the loss of white identity, that ideological reason that the group puts forward and the individual ascribes to. But behind every big reason, if you will, is a plethora of what we call little reasons, little problems, the deeply personal and deeply human problems. Right. And they're the things that create a kind of a, an openness for us to be persuaded or to feel that we are getting something from the terrorist group. You know, it could be that we feel unloved. It could be that we have no friends. We have no identity. We're feeling confused. And these are all the little things that a terrorist group provides an individual with. One of the best theories on this is by a psychologist called Ari Kuglansky. And what he calls it is he calls it the quest for significance. And basically, he says that in all of our lives, we are driven by a need to feel significant, you know, and it can be significant in any role. It can be significant as a uh, I feel significance in being a good friend. I feel significance in being a father. I feel significance in being a professor and contributing to society. I feel being I feel significance as a husband, significance as a dog owner, significance as a cat owner, even though I, you know, I love them and they. They have a habit of using my office as a as a litter tray, plug the candles. But, you know, I feel many, many roles in my life that give me significance. And what Kruglansky says is that in many cases of extremism and of terrorism, what happens is people either lose their sense of significance or they, they haven't developed a sense of significance. And that's what being involved in terrorism gives them. It gives them a purpose. It gives them something to feel significant about, that they are contributing or creating or, or, or bringing some kind of good to the world. Obviously, we know they're not bringing good to the world, but they, they feel that they are bringing good to the world. And that's the psychological opening there. So from a kind of a, a psychological standpoint, that's kind of, you know, what we you know, what we have kind of moved on to now is, you know, there's there's is these very human processes of needing to feel, you know, significant, needing to feel embedded in society. And when those disappear, a terrorist group can offer an avenue to basically fulfill basic human needs, needs for human connection, need for importance, significance, whatever it will be. But what's interesting about that is that whole debate of radicalization through to this more psychological model feeds into our very next question, which is, can we stop people from being terrorists? And, and in Time magazine in 2008, they talked about um, 10 ideas that would change the world, or 10 big ideas that would change the world. And one of them was called reversing terror. I think it was reversing terrorism or, or, or reverse radicalization. And it was talking about this movement that psychologists had kind of put forward at this time, which was this idea of, of how can we undo or reverse someone's process of being a terrorist? Now, at the time, everybody was, was drinking the Kool-Aid of radicalization causes terrorism. So the natural answer of how do you stop terrorism is, well, obviously you de-radicalize, right? If radicalization causes terrorism, 
de-radicalization must stop terrorism, right? And so we, we entered this kind of, and it's still there today, this idea of, you know, how do we de-radicalize people? And you'll still see there's a conversation going on this Wednesday about it. Um, you know, there's all this work on de-radicalization. Right? Someone's cognitively radicalized. They've gone up Clark McCauley's left triangle. How do we bring them back down that triangle? And, and it, uh, what psychologists try and do is, you know, it's a lot of re-education. What's the, what's the narratives or the misinformation or of a terrorist group or the ideology that they're putting out? And how can we convince people that that isn't correct and that they need to, you know, to how do they listen to, to countering information and, and unradicalize themselves? And you'll have seen it in the case of Sarah. You know, she met people of color in prison and those experiences violated the lessons and, and cognitions that she had established as part of this right wing group. And she started to unpack those and, and almost de-radicalize herself. But because psychologists had opened up this wider, almost ecological process driven model. And that behavioral model. The second element of kind of stopping terrorism, you know, eventually we kind of, John kind of called it, you know, disengagement. So kind of cognitions can be called de-radicalization, but how do we get people to disengage from terrorism? And, um, and there's a lot of work actually on that. I've, I've done a bit of it myself, but it's kind of on this idea of, of how do you get a terrorist to decide that they don't want to be a terrorist? And we've done, and some of the work that's gone on looks at kind of what we call push and pull factors. So, you know, what factors push people away from terrorism and what factors pull people out of terrorism? So what, what, what things are going on while someone's being a terrorist that they don't like? And what are some of the things in wider society that terrorists may want that might pull them back out? And we, we, we ran some analyses on kind of a, a bunch of autobiographies and interviews of terrorists. And you often find that a lot of them actually, not a lot of them, a portion of them often want to leave but they don't feel that they can, you know, they don't feel that they have the money to leave or the stability to leave, or they're worried about the legal aspect of leaving or threat to violence if they leave. And some of the reasons are really, really, um, really, really um, predictable. You know, disillusionment is a big one. So people become disillusioned with the leadership or disillusioned with the ideology. You know, we've all become disillusioned. You know, you, you think something's fantastic, you enter into it, and then you realise it's not what you thought it was, right? You become disillusioned. That happens with terrorists. There's a lot of cases now, if you want to look at um, Shimer, Shimer someone, well done me, um, is currently, I think, pleading to, re, to be allowed back into the United States. And, and we have a lot of cases right now of people pleading to be allowed back into the United Kingdom after they left to join ISIS. They, they, they believed that ISIS was a paradise and then they got there and they realised it was very much not a paradise. You know, they became disillusioned and they tried to leave. You know, from some of our analyses, there's factors like uh, they want to have a family or, you know, they want to go get a better job or they want to be a member of society. You know, there are all of these common, almost human basic factors that can pull people out of terrorism. And usually it's around wanting to establish almost, again, significance and status and almost an identity outside of being an extremist. In fact, there's a there's a psychological model of role exit, as in why do terrorists leave? And it's, it literally, and I'm not being funny here, and I'm not being flippant, it is exactly the same 
reason that someone le- it's the process someone goes through when they leave a relationship or leave a job. So it's by Ebauer, 1998, and it's called, you know, Theory of Rolex. And it's, you know, getting doubts. You know, am I, am I kind of, you know, ugh, is this everything I thought it was? Am I happy? You know, looking for alternatives, right? Could I do something else? Could I date someone else? Could I work somewhere else? Could I maybe not be a terrorist? You know, deciding to leave, you know, just actually saying, right, OK, I've, I've got doubts. There are alternatives. I'm going to leave. Actually leaving. So, you know, making the, the clear cut step to leave and then ad- adopting a new identity. You know, I am no longer identifying as a terrorist. I am identifying as whatever my new role is. Okay? And what we find, which, interestingly, is, you know, terrorists often go through various stages. They can go one, two, three. They never decide to leave. They can go back to one. They can go one and two. They can't find any alternatives. They can stay in the doubts phase. And what's interesting is they can leave. So stage four and then fall back in to, to back to stage one because they never establish a new identity. So the idea of stopping someone becoming a terrorist is actually a very complicated process. But, but honestly, imagine it like someone leaving a relationship. You know, they're looking for alternatives. They have to they have to decide to leave. They have to leave and then they have to not backslide their way and like fall back into it. You know, that classic you know, joke, you know, you, you break up with someone and then you get drunk and then you fall. You know, you are. Look at that. Falling back in love with them. Right. The same thing can happen with terrorists. They can have a, a clean cut. You know, in cases of people have a clean cut from the IRA. And then, you know, just like one day they bump into a few members and the next thing, you know, they've fallen back in with the IRA again. It's this really complicated psychological process. And one of the things that I hope you'll have taken from Sarah's story is for Sarah, she needed prison in order to leave. And that's something that we we refer to, you know, you need physical disengagement to allow you the space to psychologically disengage. So I guess to answer the question, can we stop people from being terrorists? Absolutely. But it's not just de-radicalizing them. We, we have to if they are, you know, when they're radicalized, you have to. It's sometimes also about that wider social process of allowing them to know what the opportunities are, allowing them to leave, you know, allowing them to physically disengage, even if that's prison. I remember we once interviewed a, an individual called Ahmed, not his real name. And he said that when he was arrested, he started laughing and crying with joy because he had been desperate to leave. He could just never find a way. So it, it's super complicated. Like the, the process of leaving is super complicated. But there is a, a cognitive element and a behavioural element. And, and a psychologist, we're making sure that avenues to leaving, you know, have both elements addressed. So that's the answer. Last question. I'll try and be brief. I don't know how long we're going. I just feel like it's long. But um, so the last question is, can we stop terrorism and and how do we do it? And I, I think that that is. I'm going to answer it in. Two ways. First, I'm going to go societally and then I'm going to go technologically and then I'm going to go. Another way. I'll, I'll decide that one when I get there. So from a societal standpoint, in, but after 
the the method to stop terrorism was basically law enforcement. So it was CIA operations, FBI operations, sting operations like you saw last week. And basically this attempt to arrest our way out of the problem of terrorism. And the problem with that is that what a lot of that did was that it created quite frictionous relationships with members of the community who began to not trust um, counter-terrorism officers, who felt that they were being unfairly targeted. Often they were. And basically that almost almost created more terrorists is kind of the thing that a lot of people kind of look at and say, you know, these heavy handed approaches to stopping it kind of made the community relations worse. They made the divide between the community and the police larger. They fed into the narratives. And, you know, people, it, it encouraged people to be terrorists. So in 2011, Obama signed kind of a new counter-terrorism strategy where he firstly stopped saying counter-terrorism um, and basically started calling it countering violent extremism. And in, in, his part, in, in the 2011 doctrine, what he basically said is that good preventing, preventing terrorism requires strong and empowered communities that are able to stop the terrorism themselves. And that was based on a couple of psychological findings. But I think one of the biggest ones was, you know, Paul Gill did, um, did a research study on lone actor terrorists and found that um, in it was something like 83% somebody knew about their intent and people didn't do anything. And so what the, you know, the, the argument was, you know, Police can't be everywhere. They can't be eyes and ears everywhere. They're, they need the communities to be able to understand or trust them and prevent counter, prevent terrorism themselves. And it created this big push towards community efforts to stop terrorism. Um, and one of the things I've done in this area, um, and you may have seen it, you may not, if I, I, don't, I don't think you, you would have, but if you have, um, is, you know, we, we created a, in UMass Lowell and within our centre, we created a non-profit called Operation 250, which just, um, I mean, it's amazing news. They're testifying tomorrow at the uh, Senate hearing on, you know, um, countering violent extremism. They, you know, they developed a community programme to teach online safety to, to kids all around Massachusetts. And so you saw this movement almost of adopting a much more community-based focus. And, and the one thing I'll say that's really interesting about that is when it first happened, it, it happened in the US, it happened in the UK, there was a real pushback. And the reason is that people perceived that the community were now the government and that the community were going to be doing the government's bidding. And, and I mean, if you, I could talk about it more, but you know, there's, 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 there's a lot of famous cases of the government trying to, you know, give communities money and communities refuse to take it. We, our project specifically, um, got in, in a very heated debate um, with, a, with a community advocacy group because they believed we were, you know, the, the word in the Vice uh, news article about me, if anyone wants to read it, I'll share it with you, uh, accuser, accuses me specifically of running a Muslim surveillance programme uh, under the auspices of a community program. So there, there was some community pushback. But a lot of the community partners, when you talk to it, and uh, Joel Bushner in the UK did a really good uh, study on this, 
A lot of them just turn around and say, this is just basic, you know, basic safeguarding. It's just basically being a good citizen. And that's exactly what now stopping terrorism looks like. In order to stop terrorism, uh, the movement now is you just need safer, better communities. It almost links to that quest for significance question. You know, people need to feel loved. They need to feel safe. They need to feel wanted. They need to feel secure. And then you need to have a community built around them that knows what risk looks like so that they can try and, and, and identify that and intervene and help. And if they need to have help from someone more serious, from law enforcement, they trust them enough to reach out to them um, and support them. And, and, you know, it absolutely can happen. It's just a challenge as to how it's done. But but that's kind of definitely one of the ways that psychologists have now gone. And, you know, I've got work there myself of what can we do in communities to help communities identify individuals who may be at risk and, and protect them themselves? Because it's better for everyone than relying on arrests and sting operations, as we have for the last decade. So the second element of this, I suppose, the stopping question, stopping terrorism question is always going to be the um, is always going to be the tech question. Um, you know, how can we stop it with technology? Maybe the NSA can do more or no, don't, 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 don't listen in. Siri, Siri, you little rat. I know you send this stuff over there. Um, you know, the NSA can listen in more and we can get more data and we can be more invasive and we can lose more liberties. Sure. That's a that's an argument. The problem with that argument is if you look at, I want to say, every act of of terrorism in the last 10 years. That might be a very close to an exaggeration, but I don't actually think it is. Look for the words. The individual was known to the authorities. And in almost every case, you will find those words. Adebowale, Adebowale and Michael Adebowale-Langer, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the lecture, they were both risk assessed by MI5 five times. Um, uh, uh, oh God, the guy in 2014, Manhan Manis, 2014, Lint Cafe shooter who held a, a, an entire cafe hostage in Australia, was risk assessed the day before because people reported his Facebook posts and he was he had a bunch of run-ins with the cops. Sarnayev brothers on the radar of security services. Most of the time these individuals are known to the um, known to law enforcement. The problem there's two problems. One we don't know what risk factors look like and what risk looks like. And there's a lot of work by psychologists on this of like, you know, risk assessment of terrorists. None of it works very well at the moment because the risk factors are then they don't have enough specificity to specify the the one person in a thousand who's actually going to murder. There's a great quote in the intelligence report of, of the of the Lee Rigby killing where it says, you know, these people were on Facebook saying they were going to behead people. And then MI5 basically wrote, and everyone is on Facebook saying they're going to behead someone. And it's this, this problem now with technology that a lot of people present as very risky by their words, but only a very, very small subset are risky by their actions. Although weirdly, I, I just did a, a project with a... Um, uh, kind of an AI algorithm using linguistic detection. And they're 
Uh, there might be something in that, we'll see. Um, but from a tech standpoint, that's the problem that we have, is you can collect more and more information, but you're making the haystack bigger and you still don't know how to find the needle. And that's kind of the problem with that. And I think the second problem with that is one of the things we see with lone actor individuals and these kind of cruder acts of terrorism is the time between being of a stressor, if you will, or that environmental trigger, to use criminal minds language, and them doing something can be very, very quick. And the process of getting lethal weapons can be very, very quick. And I don't just mean firearms. I mean, in the UK, they can grab a knife. They now grab cars. You know, they do very crude attack methods. What, what you say to that from an intelligence standpoint is they don't present with any signal that doesn't... They, it, you don't have to do a lot. You don't give a lot away in terms of going to your car. What, who is going to know in the next five minutes if I just decide I'm super fucking mad and go get in my car? You can't spot that. You can't stop that, right? Who is going to know in the next five minutes if I go and grab a kitchen blade and just run to the Braintree Mall and start knifing people, right? No one. You can't detect that. Unless I'm out on Facebook like I'm going to lose my mind in five minutes, right? Old school, post 9-11, most of the attacks looked a lot more complicated, right? I would have three or four friends, we would be communicating, we were trying to be getting bomb materials, we would maybe look at flying to Afghanistan or whatever it is, right? That is how we always caught them, because there's a lot of, that's a lot of signal, there's communications, there's word, there's keywords, there's, you need to buy certain things that are on certain lists and stuff. As terrorism gets more crude, in terms of its attack methodology, not more, not less lethal, more crude, it gets much harder to detect the people because they basically leave less signals, they leave less breadcrumbs. So the tech standpoint, I see the argument, but it isn't as easy as more tech means more safety because it gets, you've got a signal to noise ratio in there. But it can be done. But those are the kind of the parallel lines. One is a tech-based model that we will always be exploring. And one is very much a community-based model of building better communities. But you take those two together and you do them well. We have the best chance possible of stopping as many stoppable attacks as there are. Which then almost takes me to the third point, which is, as a society, one of the things we need to do is embrace the concept that we can't stop all terrorism. We don't embrace we don't have a zero tolerance policy for murder we don't have a zero tolerance policy for gang violence we don't have a zero tolerance policy for sexual assault sexual violence we don't we seem to have established a zero tolerance policy for terrorism or at least a very visceral reaction when it occurs and that I think as a society, we need to have resilience, especially with cruder attacks that are an individual, a lone individual with a lone gun or a knife or a car or whatever it is, that that is to a degree potentially unpreventable. And we as a society need to be more resilient to that, to have less of a reaction to it, because it is that quest for the reaction that, you know, media is the oxygen of terrorism. It is that reaction to it that can sometimes 
drive people and, and, and encourage people and pull people more towards it. So that's the kind of the, I think, the third piece of, of can we stop it? Can we stop it? Yes, we can. Comma, bracket. It's relatively fucking hard, but we're trying. Okay, so in conclusion, the psychology of terrorism, the Whistle Stop Tour 101, five questions with Neil Shortland. What did we learn? <laughs> I hope you took some notes. Um, when I summed up the book, um, I kind of had this interesting concept in my head, and it, it was from a book I read a little while ago, and it was called Reductionism in, in Art and Science. And I don't know if any of you have ever seen a classic reductionist painting. But if you, if you were to Google reductionist painting, it's a very famous one that's, you know, a blue square and a red square. And you're like, what the, the fuck is that? And they're like, oh, it's a seaside. Is it a seaside? Yes, it's a seaside. And what they've basically done is they've reduced a complicated scene down to these two bold colours. And it's meant to be striking and it's meant to be emotive and it's meant to excite and ignite all of these areas of the brain and people respond like, oh my God, it's so amazing. The boldness, the innovative, the brightness. Big art guy. Um, you can sometimes think of the psychology of terrorism in the same way. In that, in many cases, we have tried to reduce it to binaries, right? So, so what is terrorism? You know, binary, you know, terrorizing or not terrorizing. Oh, it's more complicated than that. Al-Qaeda or not Al-Qaeda. Oh, it's more complicated than that. Who is a terrorist? Narcissists and not narcissists. No. Mentally ill and not mentally ill. No. Criminals and non-criminals. No. It's more complicated than that. You know, why do people become terrorists? Radicalization and not radicalization. No. How do we stop them? Derad? No. The, the whole concept of terrorism it is about it is it is all about disaggregation it is all about differentiation it is about asking targeted and smarter questions with a degree of specificity about what we want psychology to answer and it is about not thinking that we need a special psychology in order to answer or address a special terrorism. Because the more we study it, the more we are learning that our fundamental understandings of humans, like humanism, humanistic psychology, that is where we're making the real progress. People need significance, they need worth, they need value, right? They're things that can drive people towards terrorism. Worryingly, they're the three things that have decreased the most because of the pandemic. So we'll worry about that in the next three to five years. But but that is a, a more powerful, nuanced and sensible way than radicalization. I'm not saying radicalization isn't there, but we know that radicalization alone isn't enough. You know, it, it's this complicated tapestry. The same, who's a terrorist? I mean, you know, I can look at... You, remember the, the case from last week, right? One single cell, the Brooklyn Four, the Newburgh Four, four individuals. Four completely different tapestries of life, four completely different psychologies that led them to there. You wouldn't, you wouldn't stand there and, and say, you know, that the, the, a holistic or hom uh, homogeneic theory would apply to all of those. No, it's about context. It's about nuance, and that's what the psychology of terrorism 
really is trying to tap into it. It's embracing the diversity um, and trying to find a way to handle that with theory. And I'll leave you with two little little words or gems that again come from the OG John Horgan. You know, hat tip, bro. Um, you know, he talks about in a, in a lecture he gave last... Uh, he actually gave a great lecture about uh, a few months ago about, you know, how basically almost the psychology of tornadoes explains terrorism. Not entirely sure I fully understood it, but there we go. But, but two words he uses that I think are, are essential is equifinality and multifinality. And, and equifinality is that people from different paths end up in the same place. And multifinality is people who have experienced the same thing end up on very different paths. And, and you have to answer that question psychologically to solve the psychology of terrorism. So I hope I provided some answers. I hope I provided some context. And if you've never had a terrorism class, if you've never thought about the psychology of terrorism, all I hope is that I have humanised the process of, of people becoming terrorists and people stopping becoming terrorists. And I, I ask for no more than that. So thank you so much for your attention. I have no idea how long this lecture is, but I really hope it isn't the longest one in the world, for your sakes rather than mine. But thank you for listening. Thank you for humouring me. I very much look forward to our debate on Thursday.